All right. Good morning, everyone. Hello. Thank you, guys. All right. So, <clears throat> to set my water down, as Jesse said, we're finishing our sermon series, Walking with Jesus. And uh, this series has been about how we relate and grow with Jesus. You know, we weren't meant to simply wander through life distant from God. Instead, Jesus invites us into real relationship with himself, which can impact our health and the trajectory of our lives. And when we walk with Jesus, life makes a little more sense. You agree? Yeah. Woo. Okay, cool. Um, so when we, as a teaching team, decided on this sermon series, I immediately thought, I want to talk about worship. Because worship is something that I get really excited to think about. I wrestle with it. I contemplate it a lot. Not at all that I'm an expert. Like, I, the only instrument I can passably play is trombone, which doesn't figure into worship bands a lot. Um, and, like, I can do an, a decent, like, bass baritone if we're talking four-part harmony. But we don't do that here. That's, and I'm not complaining at all. Um, but really, worship is something so much more than just music. It's, it's a central aspect of our lives as we walk with Jesus. Now, inevitably, if we choose to walk with Jesus, we're going to come upon moments when our decision to do that, our faith, will be asked, asked of us to like, explain it, to defend it, maybe. These moments can really challenge and grow us, I would say, even if we fail at them. So I'm thinking of a conversation I had with my brother probably 15 years ago. Now, we grew up going to church together and really went in very different directions in life. I found a very deep and personal relationship with God and a strong commitment to church. To put it simply, my brother went the opposite direction. I should also say that we as a family are not very good at deep and serious conversation. I do everything I possibly can to avoid anything close to conflict. Yet somehow we got in this very tender conversation about faith and God and Jesus. And I asked my brother what he thought about that. Like, where was he in life on those topics? And what he said really surprised me. His main objection in that moment to faith was that he couldn't understand why there would be a God who demands our worship. I was really taken aback by that. It was clearly something he had thought about a lot, but I had never put it in that frame of mind. I don't even remember how I responded. So sorry, there's no like happy ending to this story. I might have just let the question linger and moved on to a different topic of conversation. But I have thought about it ever since. Does God demand our worship? If he does, is that a bad thing? A good thing? Does it matter to us? I mean, he's God, right? When I think about the question about God demanding our worship... Honestly, what comes to mind is a line from the season one theme song to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Great show, by the way, which is, I think it's a little more nuanced than that. And that's why I love wrestling with this topic. It has challenged me to think about worship ever since that conversation and the place of worship in the life of a believer. So just some basics. What is worship? Well, dictionary.com Definition number one says it's reverent honor and homage or homage or however you want to say that word paid to God or a sacred personage or to any object regarded as sacred. Now, traditionally, as a church, the activity of worship is everything we do on Sunday mornings. It is the gathering together of believers to celebrate God and what he's done for us. I met a coworker, a new coworker years ago, and we found out we're both church-going people. And the way she asked me was like, oh, Patrick, where do you worship? 
And it's funny because that question struck me as odd. We don't really use the word in that way quite so much anymore. More recently, the word worship has become shorthand for the music portion of what we do on Sundays or at other gatherings. So the phrase praise and worship music has been shortened to just worship, even though really it describes everything we're doing together. Now, what does the Bible have to say about this? It's probably a pretty good source since we're talking about God. A form of the word worship, whether worship, worshipers, worshiping, worshipped, comes up 254 times at least in Scripture, starting in Genesis and going all the way to Revelation. It has many different uses. Some of them are instructive, how we're supposed to worship. Some of them are descriptive about how people did worship. This one's fun because it has a lot of like physical components. So-and-so stood and worshipped. So-and-so knelt and worshipped. So-and-so bowed and worshipped. A lot of times in ancient Israel, where we read about in the Old Testament, there was a lot of sacrificing going on in relation to worship. People sacrificed their best animals. They brought their best crops to the temple to give to God as a symbol of like saying their you know, reliance on him, that they trust him to provide, and so they'll give the best back to God. And some of the sacrifices specifically had to do with atoning for sin, There are long passages about worship in the Bible, about its significance, its meaning, its purpose, how to do it right. But there's so much said that it can be such a huge topic. I'm going to today focus on a bunch of Bible verses, but our main one is going to be in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And the book of Romans, it's in the New Testament, so that's the latter half of the Bible, which is about the ministry of Jesus and the beginning of the church after his time on earth. And this was a book written by the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, to the church in Rome, which he had actually not visited yet. He had heard about this church and was inspired by their faith, and he wanted to visit them. But he hadn't visited, and so he wanted to write to this church to encourage them in their faith, to deepen their understanding of the gospel, and tell them a little bit about how to live that out, how to live out the way of life as a follower of Jesus and Rome was on like kind of far end of what was a very new world of Christian believers. Not only were they far from most other believers, but they were in the seat of power of the Roman Empire. So they could use all the encouragement they could get at that time. And the book of Romans is enormous, and it's deep, and it's thoughtful. And I love these two verses because they think they're the crux of the whole, ver- of the whole book. So before we dive in and read that, would you pray with me? Lord God, worship is a big topic, and it's something we may never fully understand. But it's how we connect with you, Lord. Would you invite us deeper into an understanding of worship, what it means for us corporately, what it means for us individually? Would you even invite us into conversation and just further wrestling about what worship means in our lives? Enlighten us with your scripture, Lord. Bring your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So if you've been around church enough, you always know that somebody's going to talk about a passage in the Bible that begins with therefore. You've got to ask, like, what is it therefore? 
So he's really referencing a lot of stuff, he, a lot of points he made before this, and he's arriving at a point that's the summary of so much of that. And there's two clues in this that you know, Paul kind of gives it away. One is the phrase, in view of God's mercy, which is really what he had been writing about primarily before then. And then another phrase I think is key is the pattern of this world. So Romans chapters 1 through 11, like I said, dense, beautiful, thorough look at God's mercy and the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus. That's what Paul is building his argument on, and then he gets to this therefore. And that whole argument is really, like I said, the whole gospel. He talks about how from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, people have been deceived into thinking they don't need God. And how all people, us included, we live outside relationship with God to some extent. To some extent, we live in rebellion against the ways he meant for us to live. All of us have fallen short of our purpose. Our rebellion and God's enemies have made the world full of sin, decay, and destruction. And from the beginning, God said, it was, that stuff is so unholy, it must be punished by death, because he is so holy. But the good news is that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die in our place. Jesus' death on the cross was a perfect sacrifice to pay the price for us. And if we choose to have faith in that, he restores our relationship with the Father into the way we were meant to live, relationship with God. And brought back to life, Jesus' heavenly kingdom was inaugurated. It's heaven breaking into earth. That's the new paradigm, the new way of life that we live in as believers. And then he gets to Romans 12 with that therefore. And he turns to talk about how we're supposed to live as God's people in that new reality. And he writes, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's true and proper worship. That means to give all of ourselves to God, our whole selves, to live as he wants us to live. And I think about that conversation with my brother, and that is kind of demanding. But if we're God's creations, if we were his to begin with, maybe that's not that demanding at all. Maybe it's just kind of the right thing to do. Like, if we are people that God made and loved and loves, what if we just act like it? And maybe not just act like it, but truly live our lives as people living in the truth that God created us. He's always loved us. He's saved us. And he's restoring us. Is it too much to ask that we give our lives to him? But in these verses, there is a demand. And it's in the next verse where it says that we should not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And this is where it gets challenging. And Paul is honest about the challenge. In the new reality, post-Jesus' death and resurrection, God has shown himself to be the solution to the problem. But we still live in the problem. His kingdom hasn't fully come yet. We're not in heaven yet. We're in this in-between place where we're in a broken world, but we have the promise of hope and glory and resurrection. Our job is to be a part of God's solution by partnering with him in how we live. But we face opposition all the time. The pattern of this world. So how do we live that out? I think the answer is right above it, by worshiping God with all of ourselves, with every part of our lives. Worship is the solution, solution to avoiding, avoiding the pattern of the world. Instead, worship aligns us with the pattern of God, 
if we worship him. Now, this is a high calling, and it comes with the warning that it's going to be hard, that we will be opposed, that we'll be tempted otherwise. And I want to give you some comfort that it's okay because, hey, we're just like every human ever. You and I are weak. We're prone to get it wrong. But what's before us is the choice. Do we choose the pattern of the world or do we choose the pattern of God? We need to remain mindful of how we can get it wrong. We need to be vigilant and aware of that so that we can get it more right every day. So I'm going to be a little bit of a Debbie Downer and look at some ways that we get it wrong so that it will show us how we can better get it right to live lives that are lives of worship with all of ourselves. And I think the first thing is in that phrase, the pattern of the world, which Paul has written about in the whole first chunk of Romans. If I could summarize it, I would say is that it said humans are easily deceived into worshiping other gods. That's the pattern of the world. In the very beginning of Romans, as he sets up his argument in chapter 1, he even describes that humanity has almost always chosen to things that are created rather than the creator himself. The creator who gave us all of the things. But the pattern of this world makes it easier for us to look at those tangible things, those things right before us, and to worship them instead of the God who, because of our sin, can seem so distant. This was a constant problem that you read about in the Bible quite a lot. It's a problem even for people who would directly experience the miraculous presence of God. I'm thinking about the ancient Jews who God had rescued out of Egypt. And shortly after he did, he says this in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You may recognize this. It's the beginning of the Ten Commandments. It's actually the first two commandments. Now, it's been a while since I was a mathlete, but that's 20% of the commandments are about worshiping God and not other things. This was so important to God, a message that he found so crucial to share with his people. Why? Because he knows they're going to get it wrong. And they needed that strong reminder that he is the one true God, the rescuing God, who's given them new life and hope after Egypt. Sadly, we cut to one generation later in the book of Judges, just in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Now, we talked about those a few weeks ago, actually, in early June. Baal and Ashtoreths were pagan fertility gods in the Near East at the time. Worship of them involved temple prostitution and other things that were horrendous. But that kind of worship was physical and tangible, much like the golden calf that the Israelites had created right after they were given the Ten Commandments. It was kind of shiny and pleasurable, not quite maybe as distant as God. We're prone to go to those things that we can touch and see and feel. 
And that kind of worship of idols might seem like a different planet to us today. But I think that there's a key verse in there, verse in there that has everything to do with us as well. They worshipped the various gods of the peoples around them. We are so easily influenced by the culture around us. We're so deceived by the messages we get coming at us every single day. And what we worship reflects that. What does our culture worship in Santa Monica, in Los Angeles, in the United States in 2019? I'm going to share a few things from a couple writers. First is Adele Alberg Calhoun. This is a very simple explanation of worship from her spiritual disciplines handbook that my community group did an awesome study on a few months ago. She says, the simple truth is that everybody looks to something or someone to give their lives meaning. Worship reflects the some things or some ones we value most. What we love and adore and focus on forms us into the people we become. Some of us highly value our independence. Others pour our time and energy into totems of power, approval, success, control, or happiness. We may not consider our obsession with these things acts of worship, but they are. They are what we look to to get us up in the morning and keep us going throughout the day. Now, she's a believer talking about spiritual disciplines, ways of growing closer to God. But here's David Foster Wallace in a commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005. And he's not a believer, but he writes so astutely about the human experience. He says, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's, no, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. But the whole trick is keeping the truth up in front of daily consciousness. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will never, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship does not, is not that they're evil or sinful. This is his perspective. It's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Does any of what he said, his examples, sound like culture around us? Body, beauty, sexual allure, money, things, intelligence, power. What is worshipped in our city? Maybe that people aren't even aware of. So these two writers, one a believer, one very much not, and the Apostle Paul, they helped me process the question that my brother posed to me so many years ago. It's not that God demands our worship just because though I would argue that he could because he's God, it's that God knows we're going to worship. We're going to look to someone or something for our value, comfort, and purpose. And what he demands is that our worship is rightly placed in the one person in all the universe who can actually provide those things for us. 
This is what Paul's talking about when he says true and proper worship, with the emphasis on true. Proper worship honors the God who is true and in whom is all truth. And Paul's actually echoing a statement of Jesus himself, which we looked at just six weeks ago. It's that passage where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and she's saying, well, the Samaritans worship on the mountain and the Jews worship in the temple. And Jesus is like, yes, yes, yes. But a time is coming. This is in John 4, verse 23. A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is pointing to what worship will mean in the new reality of his kingdom. And as promised after he left, God's spirit has been poured out on all believers. God's spirit is no longer stuck in a temple or in a certain place behind a curtain where only the high priest could go. God's intimate relationship with all of his people has been restored. But we see in what Jesus is saying, another failing of worship that God wants us to overcome. Not only are we prone to worshiping other things, we're prone to going through the motions. The opposite of intimate worship. So Jesus speaks of worship in the spirit. Worshippers communing with God himself. And Paul encourages us to give ourselves completely as sacrifices. A total giving of our lives to God in deep relationship. And in doing so, we'll grow and learn to know him and his will for us. But the thing about relationship is that it actually takes relating to happen. So Jesus and the Samaritan woman were talking about the function of worship on a mountain or in a temple. The details of how they worshiped do not necessarily encompass truth and relationship. When the focus is on the routine or the place or the time or the how or the tradition it can become so easily empty worship. And this, unfortunately, has been a problem from the get-go as well. Listen to what two Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, have to say about this. Now, these guys have a really hard job. They were given a very unique job of speaking God's truth to rebellious people, calling them back to what God had for them and intended for them. Isaiah, in chapter 29, verse 13, says... The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. Just going through the motions. And Jesus quotes this verse specifically when he's speaking to the religious leaders of his day. It gets harder. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 3. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, Then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incest to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Jeremiah is taking this to another level. 
These people, God's people, were living in complete rebellion, lives that had nothing to do with the way he wanted them to live. Yet they claimed that they could run to the temple and be like, no, we're good because we're God's people. Their worship wasn't just half-hearted. It was full-on hypocrisy. This is why Paul writes that we need to offer ourselves, our whole selves, so that we don't follow, fall into this pattern toward hypocrisy in the way we worship with our lives. God did not give himself in part for us. Jesus gave himself fully that we would have full and abundant life. But as people that so easily focused on the surface and the tangible and the physical, Paul knows that we're prone to fall into this stuff, into a default setting, as David Foster Wallace said. We can easily fall into going through the motions, ultimately hiding our hearts from God. And the failure of half-hearted worship or hypocritical worship, you could argue it's the same as worshiping other gods. Maybe half-hearted worship is just worshiping our comfort, worshiping what's easy, worshiping our independence, worshiping our control. So these are major failures of worship that God speaks really strongly about. But what's the opposite then? What is true and proper worship? I would argue that if you can simplify it to any one thing, it's to pursue relationship with God in all his truth as our creator and savior. But as I said a moment ago, relating needs to be a part of relationship. We have to pursue it. We have to choose it. And as you think about your life and how it's worshipful or not, and we're all a mix of that somehow, how is your relationship with God reflected in your daily choices, in your weekly routines? How is it reflected in what you do when you're alone, what you do when you're with your family, with your friends. At the heart of true and proper, proper worship is engaging in relationship with the personal God who knows you perfectly, loves you, and has the best for you in all the ways that you live. As you get to know God and all his truth and his mercy, what might it mean for that broken relationship in your life? If you really take in God's mercy for you, could mercy change that relationship? What might it mean for the way that you exhaust yourself trying to be as successful as or as fit as or as funny as the coolest person you know? What if you just tried to be yourself as God created you to be instead? Think about what your life would mean if you truly knew how much God valued you and loves you. Think about what it would mean if you knew how much God truly values and loves your greatest enemy. That's tough. That's a hard thing to think about. But our lives will be changed by the renewing of our minds as we press into relationship with God. I'm going to finish up with a couple things and I'll invite the band to come back up as I do. As we see in scripture, humans have always been weak to the influence of those around us, to surface-only worship, to worshiping other gods that are pretty and shiny and amazing and feel good. But if we're weak to influence, what if we point our weakness to good influence? What if we're just honest about where we are with God 
and say, hey, I need help. Worship, as I've talked about, may be everything, all of our lives, and a big, huge topic that we can never really pin down. But going back to the beginning of my talk, worship is also the gathering together of believers to celebrate God. So yes, worship is everything about your lives, but it is also coming to church on Sunday mornings. And that's a really good place to be influenced by the truth. Knowing that we're easily influenced and deceived by the world around us, let's make sure that what we take in includes some truth on a regular basis and that we're not alone in doing that. We have family and support here in our pursuit of the truth and knowing God personally. So worship is the church service on Sundays, but it is also the songs we sing as we're most used to using the word. When we sing songs together, it's a chance to proclaim truth. Like, let the words of truth, of scripture, or people's response to scripture as they've written these beautiful songs, let those words rattle around in your head and in your mouth a little bit. If you soak up truth like that, it will change you. And a key aspect of worshiping, of proclaiming truth, is that truth is truth whether you feel like it or not. Whether you're in the mood, whether you're doubting, whether you're grieving, or whether you're hurting, God is true in all his goodness and love. In the hardest times in my own life, when I came to worship at church, sometimes all I could do was stand there and kind of mouth the words silently. I just didn't have the gumption in me to even sing. And I love singing with my so-so voice. But I was hurting. But I knew that if I just chose to stand, chose to, with a posture of my body, proclaim that God is worth that, I knew he would draw near to me. And God does draw near to us. He knows what each of us is bringing into times of worship. And he's glad simply that we've chosen to connect with him. He'd rather have our honest selves in worship Whatever's going on in our lives, if we come and open ourselves up to him, then something that's putting on a show. This is worship in the spirit. It's in relationship with a personal God. It's not putting on a show. It's not going through the motions. And if we open ourselves up to an interaction with him, our minds will be transformed. We'll fill ourselves, surround ourselves by the truth that will change us if we're open to letting it, to letting God in. I would argue that even one other activity is central to worship, which we've already done this morning, and that's the communion meal. You know, Jesus said to do that in remembrance of him. That sounds a little like back in the Ten Commandments. God reminded the people that he is the God who saved them from slavery and brought them out of Egypt. God wants us to remember Because we're so easily prone to forget. That's just human nature. God wants us to remember the truth of his love for us. In whatever we do on Sunday mornings, I encourage you to come honestly. Whatever you do in your community groups, or in just putting on a song by yourself at home, however and wherever you find time to do activities of worship, Make it honest. Know that God wants to relate to you, wants to talk to you, 
wants to just chat. And as we talked about when we did communion, he wants to make an exchange. Whatever burden you're bearing, whatever hurt you have inside, he has something better for you. And as you turn to him, as you worship him, your life will be transformed. You'll be more free, more capable of loving others.